Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Sherry Quinn has the day off today. We're going to travel around the world. Moab to Lewiston to Salt Lake City and eventually to Malaysia, Japan, Russia and points beyond. We're going to be hearing from the UPR series, My Address Is. We'll meet Don Baldwin, who grew up in Salt Lake City, but decided as a young man he wanted to be a dairy farmer. And the Landau family, who live in the city and bike to work and hike from home. Later in the program, we'll talk to a woman whose address is often the road. National Geographic photographer Karen Kozmowski, who explores how science allows us to understand ourselves and how that shapes our destiny. We begin, however, with Rock Camp. Last week in Moab, local musicians held the town's first rock camp. John Kovash reports. The idea for the rock camp came from Amy Stocks, a Moab musician and also a director of the town's teen center. Yeah, I found out about an organization called Girls Rock Alliance that happens all over the United States and I think even out of the country. Um, they basically spend four days working with youth, girls specifically, and teaching them how to play an instrument, form bands, learn songs, and then perform at the very end. And I was completely inspired and I thought I'd bring it back to Moab, but not gender specific, just make it about the youth. I thought about the wealth of musicians that we have in this town and the wealth of talent in so many different forms. Everyone adds a Moab element to it, which is really nice. You know, we're gonna have a taiko drum workshop, which is very Moab. I think. We are creating band logos, we're making t-shirts, we're learning about hauling gear and teaching them how to rock, how to own their stage, how to own their their talents, how to really, you know, be a rock star. You know, many of them haven't even touched an instrument before, let alone been in a band. Rock and roll camp is, is a, a little bit attitude and a lot of uh, confidence building. Uh, my name is Amy, I will be one of the drum instructors. I'm super psyched to rock with you guys. My name is Haley and I'm doing vocals. <laughs> my name's Molly and I'm doing guitar. <laughs> my name's Jaden and I'm doing bass. I'm Amy and I play drums. My name is Eric and I play the guitar. My name is Maggie, I sing a bunch of songs like country and pop and rock. Jenna. I've been into music since I was three. We've got metal, dance music, you have blues, indie, funk, punk, country. So we want to find out a little bit more about each genre. 16 Moab students ages 8 to 13 showed up for rock camp, enough to form four different bands. Guitarist Scott Ibex was one of the many local professional rock musicians who donated their time. One of the main points of this week of us being here together is we're all going to write one song with our band and then we're going to perform it at the end of the week. And I want to give you a couple tools that you can use in these rehearsals. Write a song. So we're going to start by listening to some of the masters. Some of the classic people from back in the day. The first one we're going to talk about is James Brown. Hey! Jeff Gutierrez, alto sax player, teamed with Ibex to teach songwriting. I went to uh, undergrad at Northwestern, got a jazz saxophone degree, went to grad school at Arizona State and uh, for master's in music education and jazz studies. I am a mostly self-taught musician, but I just have had so much fun experimenting with original music all throughout college. I probably played in five or six different groups and the indie music scene in a way throughout most of my life. John Oshevsky is a member of Moab's premier rock band, Stonefed. On day two, John showed the kids how to use a looper as a songwriting tool. You write songs? What do you write songs about? About your life? Snapping your fingers? Like that, right? Everybody want to snap their fingers right there? And a robot? We need a robot? Okay, everybody's going to pick something to add to this. What if we just do with our voice? So it's like... What happened? I broke it down, huh? Right? You guys were like, this is my favorite tool for songwriting. Then I won't have to worry about the dogs that be biting at me on my way to school. Don't be a fool. Try to be cool. Melodies actually work over the top of each other because you guys were listening to each other 
when you sung them. So there's actually three different parts going together to make one big song. It works really well because it's very interactive with them and they, they're able to see a direct response, you know, immediately effective. Discussing song uh, structure with kids sometimes is hard because it is just words and then you say to them, hey, this is the verse and this is the chorus and they're listening to music and so they really respond to that interactive beauty and when they're able to make a little song like that, they're able to feel the beat and they just light up. Do you guys maybe want to try singing it, all three of you, by yourself? Okay. Yeah. yeah! In the teen center gym, Haley Peachcott and Lisa Marie, both local musicians, instructed the inspiring young singers in the finer points of vocals. Do you guys want to try practicing yep. into the microphone? Do we too? want to do the mic? I want to do the mic. But sometimes you come in before a measure, like a count before, and it's called a pickup okay. note. And so sometimes as a singer, it's kind of tricky to pick that up. Okay, one, two, three. As I went down, and then there's your one, is on the down. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the sorry. Hmm, this is definitely new for me. For me, the ear is the most important thing, you know, and so I've just like, I listen to songs and then I try to sing them. So I think it's getting to know your group and then being able to improvise on the spot, be able to kind of tweak things a little bit because you can plan and plan and plan. Each morning started with punk rock aerobics in the gym. On day three, Jasper Groff, also a member of Stonefed, gave a presentation on headbanging and stage presence. Does everybody know how to headbang or rock out? So let's see everybody's headbang for a sec. Yeah, punk rock, that's it right there. Have a good time, laugh. There's a few different kinds of headbanging right there. You got your like casual headbang. And then you got your, you got, see, let's see that again. Show everybody else that, that sweet move right there. The knee slide's a pretty good one if you got a smooth stage. Yeah, right there. All right. Yeah, own it, own it. And be careful, because sometimes there's cords on stage, you don't want to catch a toe and drop on your face. Rock and roll, for some reason, makes people want to jump, you know, on the hits, you'd be like. Let's see it, yeah. Instruction and band practice consumed the rest of the day. Bass player Dave Mealy was downstairs demonstrating the art of the bottom end. We talked about holding your bass, right? So we kind of went over that again. And going back and forth, alternating between our fingers, right? Yeah, exactly. There we go. And remember, we're trying to practice moving between our two strings there, you know what I mean? And, and playing together. Playing together, exactly. And that's important in a band, obviously. So, ready? One, two, three, four. Just listen. And the inspiration. I pledge allegiance to the band. To rock. Jack Black. The School of Rock. I can sing. Do you try to channel your inner Jack Black? Yes. We're all just 
up dancing and acting like we had microphones in our hands. You know, kind of find my inner rock star as well. Midnight or something, the night before rock camp started, I started watching School of Rock. Put it on just to get a little inspiration. I've personally always felt a kinship with Jack Black, like he's a long lost soul brother of mine. So the Jack Black's just there. (laughs) One of the points in that movie that was punctuated was that the parents, you know, are kind of mad at their kids and their kids have been hanging out with this guy who's not really a teacher and then he turns out to be this just rock and roll guy. Letting the kids know that they rock and letting yet letting them let themselves know that they rock, that extra exuberance of Jack Blackiness energy. Just creating lots of space in our bodies so our so we have lots of room to make a really big sound. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes? My friends are job pushes. I must make amends. Work hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Then it was Friday night in the public concert at the Arts and Recreation Center where each band performed the song it had written during the last four days. All right, so we've got the first band up tonight is the Titans. Moab's always drawn musicians in because of its beauty. This is definitely a necessary step to get, you know, community level involvement. I think, though, that this will definitely be something that snowballs. I can just see it growing and growing. Twice a year, I think, would be the best. You know, maybe one for adults and one for kids. Do what you want. <laughs> as long as it's as long as it's rocking, as long as there's good energy behind it, then. Reporting from the first annual Moab Rock Camp, this is John Kovash for UPR News. traveling around Utah and in fact we'll get to traveling around the world here on Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. I'm Tom Williams. Later in the program, a conversation with National Geographic photographer Karen Kozmowski, who explores how science allows us to understand ourselves and how that shapes our destiny. Right now, UPR explores what your home says about you in its new series, My Address Is. UPR reporters are speaking with individuals from all walks of life about how their homes reflect who they are and to discuss close-to-home issues facing our friends and families. First up, uh, UPR's April Ashland delves into life on the farm. My address is Baldwin Dairy in Lewiston, Utah. Don Baldwin decided as a young man he wanted to be a dairy farmer. 
but the square mile, 600 head dairy began as a much smaller operation. I grew up in Salt Lake City on the East Bench. I, I come from a non-farm background and uh, we bought two heifers that had already calved and 13 springers on Thanksgiving weekend in 1981. We originally started with just an old dilapidated dairy. It was, it took us almost a week to get enough milk in the bottom of a very small tank that they could even measure it <laughs> or the truck could pick it up. Don's job on the farm is more than just owner and dairyman. He grows most of the food used to feed his cattle. In a given week, he is husband, father, chemist, veterinarian, and mechanic. Don's existence is intrinsically tied to the land and the milk his cows produce. But he says issues arise because the majority of the public has lost their connection to the farm. And it affects all aspects of his life. Whether cities are encroaching on the farm and getting upset by the smell, how food is produced, or legislative issues, he believes the American populace is separated from their food by too many generations. Right now, we are hauling manure onto our fields. It's a byproduct of the dairy, and, and it represents a valuable source of nutrients for our cropping and crop rotations. People used to understand that that was part of the game. Now there's a hue and a cry that goes up if we start hauling manure that, that we are contaminating the roads we have. We're destroying the aesthetic value of the community because it smells. Utah is a right-to-farm state, which means if a farm is already in production when residential or businesses grow up around it, the farmer has a right to stay. But Don says that is being challenged on a personal basis. As uh, cities build up around land that has been traditionally farmed for uh, several generations, the land values are, are pushed up exponentially high. If someone decides they still want to farm there, we face neighbors who have moved in there since we were there and who want to change things. The nitty-gritty of how farming happens is not the only way farmers are impacted by the public's loss of connection. The legislation for businesses and farms enacted in capital buildings across the country impacts day-to-day -day activity on a farm. New tax law states if a farmer makes a repair to a piece of equipment that will prolong the life of the equipment, farmers cannot deduct the cost of the repair if it is more than $500. It's insane. We can hardly buy any parts for under $500. You know, I mean, it's not uncommon for us to spend four, five, six thousand dollars for a part. When I put a front axle under a tractor, it was six thousand bucks. In 2001, President Bush signed the Economic Growth and Taxpayer Relief Reconciliation Act, which reduced federal estate taxes, nicknamed the death tax, and increased the amount of untaxable property that can be transferred to the next generation. According to the 2012 Census of Agriculture, the average age of the American farmer is 58.3 years old, with 62% of farmers older than 55. As Don plans for the future of his farm, he says his daughter and son-in-law have bought into the dairy, but the rest of his children have yet to decide what they want to do. I'm not sure if that's what I want to do with my life. Don's son Morgan is 22 and graduates from Utah State University with a degree in economics in May. My father has it set up that he kind of wants us to have a firm decision by the time you're 25. He says, you know, you should have a pretty good idea what you're doing in life by then. And so right now I'm just kind of exploring other options and, and, and deciding. Don says he wants his children to pursue their dreams like he did. Dairy farming has been a good life for me. I've made a good living with it. I've raised a good family. It's been a good experience for me. It's not for everybody. But uh, I did produce... Um, a viable product that was a benefit to society. Um, I fed a lot of people in my life. Don says many problems in agriculture could be averted or fixed if the public found a way to reconnect to and learn about agriculture. If they just understood that, how it impacts their lives, you know, I mean, they go to the grocery store and they buy, they buy food. Some people are becoming naive enough to believe that food comes from the store. And it doesn't. It, it, it first is produced on the farms. This is April Ashland for Utah Public Radio.
Utah Public Radio's My Address Is series explores Utah issues based on how and where we live. Up next, part two of the series, UPR's Eric Jungblut looks at the hustle and bustle of city living. In a little more than 100 years, the Wasatch Front has grown from small settlements in the harsh desert into a dense urban and suburban sprawl, stretching from Ogden in the north to Provo in the south. And in the center of it all is Salt Lake City. Joanna Landau and her husband Clemens are lawyers by trade. They live in a so-called warehouse-style home just up the hill from the Utah State Capitol. The Landows and their two adopted children are just four of the almost 200,000 people who call the state's largest city their home. The Landows chose their home because it allows them to live close to downtown while having the great outdoors in their backyard. Well, that's exactly why I can never live anywhere else, because we bought our house on a dead-end street that ends in a trail, which is five minutes from our work downtown on bikes. It's the best of both worlds. You can walk downtown to go to restaurants and you can walk up the hill. I think you can walk all the way over to Bountiful if you want to in those hills and walk even further further afield if you're so inclined. But it's, yeah, it's just the perfect mix. The Landau's commute largely by bike to their respective firms in downtown Salt Lake and can drop off their children at daycare on the way. Joanna says she and her husband, who are not religious, sometimes struggle with whether Utah is the right place to raise their children, who are African-American and non-LDS, making them othered in the state's dominant culture. She says Utah is a great place to raise adopted children, however. Even though the kind of stereotype is a big family, the emphasis is on getting children and infertility and other reasons, other things run through, you know, Mormon families too. And so there are a lot of adoptive families because everyone does want kids and prioritizes having kids. So we know a ton of adoptive families in Utah. Yeah, I think we are more accepted here in a lot of ways. Weston Clark is a stay-at-home dad with two adopted children of his own. He lives near the University of Utah and says he likes the concept of Salt Lake City's neighborhoods. Older neighborhoods surround the city center. Neighborhoods that were considered the suburbs back when they were being developed, Clark said. These neighborhoods attract a variety of people in different phases of their lives. But I love the concept that you can have a neighborhood that appeals to all kinds of people and all like in all generations. So you could live your entire life in one neighborhood if you wanted to. You could, you know, they have the housing stock to accommodate that growth. So you could live there while you were, you know, raising a family. You could live there while you were single. You could live there while you were retired. Um, And there's condos and single family and large homes and small homes. And it's nice to have that variety. The area where he and his family live now works well for them, with a big yard and a larger house for the kids to grow up. Weston and his partner Brandon were married on December 20, 2013, the day Utah's Amendment 3 was ruled unconstitutional by the Utah District Court. They were married by Salt Lake City Mayor Ralph Becker. Salt Lake is often regarded as one of the most gay-friendly cities in the country, in addition to being one of the most diverse areas of the state. Salt Lake City, we feel like, is uh, it's kind of a mecca for those of us who love everything that Utah has to offer, but are a little bit squeamish about the predominant political and religious persuasion. You know, And e- even those who are a part of the predominant political or religious persuasion, um, they like the diversity that comes with Salt Lake City and the difference of thought and opinion. Landau says she thinks religions mix well in Salt Lake. We walk through the temple all the time, and certainly conference weekend you see a lot of Mormon, you know, huge presence of Mormons, but you see on Sundays at the Cathedral of the Madeline there's tons of Catholics coming in and out, and the Presbyterians down on the next block. I mean, you find a good mix of religions in Salt Lake for sure. Not far from Salt Lake is a treasure trove of natural beauty. The Wasatch Mountains tower over the valley and offer an escape from the hustle and bustle of the city. One second you are downtown in a pretty urban, cosmopolitan city, and, you know, ten minutes later you're up in nature and there's a river running next to you and, you know, you might see bear or moose, (laughs) you know, over the side. So it's it's just so amazing to have that um, juxtaposition of, of nature and urbanity, and it's just really neat to see the two right next to each other and enjoy both of them. Landau is originally from Denver, where she says getting to the natural surroundings can take long travel times. That's why she can't ever see herself leaving Salt Lake City. 
I've considered moving back to Denver, and I don't think I can give up the physical dimensions of what I have here. And like Weston said, nature and city life are juxtaposed in Salt Lake, a combination that reflects the diversity of the city's urban residents. For Utah Public Radio, I'm Eric Jungblut. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, coming up in the My Address Is series, a family who's trying to live green, the uh, trials of military families and uh, elderly living on their own. This series is heard Tuesdays and Wednesdays in All Things Considered and also in Morning Edition. Be heard over the next couple of weeks for more episodes uh, in this series. Hope you'll tune in. Following a break, we'll be talking to a woman whose address is often the road as we continue to travel on Axis Utah. National Geographic photographer Karen Kozmowski, whose travels have taken her from the rainforests of Malaysia to the megacities of India to the north slope of Alaska. She's covered earthquakes in Japan, been arrested in Africa, and exposed to radiation in Russia. Her book, Impact, from the Front Lines of Global Health, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. We're going to revisit a conversation from a couple of years ago with Karen Kozmowski, following a brief break. With the rise in the oil and gas industry, communities are growing and local economies are booming. We want to hear your stories about living with oil and gas in Utah and surrounding areas. Let us know how the boom is affecting your family, your community, and your local job or business. Tell us what's on your mind when the oil and gas are just down the street. To share your experience, join our Public Insight Network. Visit upr.org and then click on Become a Source. Come fill your prescription for fun on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. You'll get down-to-earth advice and great lifestyle tips, like this tasty recipe for... Old-fashioned pork chop suey. We always have a great time, so will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. From PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday morning at 3 and Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now offering a ham and cheese demi-baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. On Access Utah today, this part of the program, we're uh, talking with Karen Kozmowski, uh, who is a photographer for National Geographic. Uh, she's photographed more than 20 major stories for National Geographic, covering subjects as diverse as Appalachia, Japanese culture, and pandemics. In recent years, she's involved as National Geographic's go-to photographer for sweeping global health stories, such as the worldwide struggle against disease, the search for an AIDS cure, and mysteries of aging and female reproductive health. Kozmowski writes a column for Nikon World Magazine, creates online features for AARP. And uh, Karen Kozmowski has Japanese ancestry. She's explored that. In fact, she gives some presentations on, uh, on culture and uh, some of her work uh, exploring Japanese culture and economy. Uh, she says her interest is in people, not the process of technology. Instead of uh, saying, here's uh, the machine uh, of our understanding is created, I say, she says, uh, here's the person affected by our understanding. Well, I want to uh, talk to her about uh, some of the people that she has met worldwide in her uh, travels. And uh, Karen Kozmowski, our guest on Access Utah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really uh, appreciate you asking me to be on your program. I want to talk, uh, maybe getting us into uh, the front lines of global health, talk a bit about some pictures I saw in a, in a, a story you did about AIDS. A whole series of, uh, of pictures, one of them that really stood out at me, it was the last uh, picture in the series. And it was a, uh, I believe she had to have been a, a dead woman, emaciated, in a glass case. That was actually in Thailand. Ah, okay. And um, what, that was a quite an interesting story. I came across it quite by accident. And this was, the story on AIDS was done, it was really to mark what we would call the 
20th anniversary of the naming of AIDS. It, I think the French would disagree with us on when the actual date of this was. But uh, it, we marked it around the early 2000s. So I did a story which looked at the really the status of where AIDS is after all these decades and where we are with the disease, uh, which is really quite an interesting story in itself. So I traveled to Africa to look at the impact of it on on women and children mainly, and in areas like, you mentioned not thinking about children, but in fact, children are probably the ones who are most affected by it because AIDS tends to attack adults when they're in their prime of their life for a lot of different reasons, and often these adults have children, and so these children are oftentimes left alone or in the care of an elderly grandparent, and there are probably villages throughout Africa where a good portion of the households are headed up by children, people who are under 16, 15 years old. It's quite stunning to think about that when here in our country we don't even think about letting our 16-year-old drive across town. You know, here they are, these children who are actually running households and making major decisions for their siblings because their parents both have died of this horrible disease. The other uh, picture that you make reference to was in Thailand, which was one of the first Southeast Asian countries to begin to feel the impact of AIDS quite strongly back in the 90s. And they decided to take the disease by the horns and just, you know, be way up front with it, admit that it's there, and deal with it in a very upfront manner. Because uh, the, the country tends to be mostly Buddhist, their view of death is very different than ours. The body is just an, you know, a vessel on which to carry the soul. So once you go, your body is, is just there. And so what happened in this hospice, this Buddhist hospice uh, that I went to, run by Buddhist monks, is that the people who were treated there, oftentimes these people were abandoned by their families, but were cared for very lovingly by the monks, would donate their bodies to what they would call education. And these bodies were put into formaldehyde cases. And now I went back there again just a couple of years ago, and they're actually displayed outside the cases. I'm not sure how they physically did that. but And the idea, it's kind of a tough love version of this is what happens to you when you get AIDS. And the room is called the death room, and it is visited by thousands and thousands of soldiers and school kids and adults and everything to sort of see what the final unfortunate end result of the AIDS virus is. What has been the effect of this uh, push by the, uh, the government in Thailand? I think if they have stabilized the disease, so it's not increasing. However, it's still there. Unfortunately, uh, AIDS is one of these perfect storm diseases that takes advantage of all of our weaknesses. And uh, so it's still there, but it is not increasing at the same rate that it is in its surrounding neighborhood countries. So uh, I think I think Thailand is doing a good job with working with the AIDS virus and trying to eliminate it from or at least control it. By the way, you can see uh, some of these photographs I made reference to at KarenKazmowski.com. By the way, what are some of the maybe people that uh, really have been memorable to you as you've uh, traveled around? Right, and that's the people are really the most interesting thing about this whole uh, topic. Uh, what I call the heroes of global health. These are these amazing health workers who go out there and actually deliver the care. I mean, governments can make big, broad, sweeping policies, and we can have great expectations and hopes. But the only way this work is actually done is if a human being goes out there and delivers it. And that's for these people who uh, make it their life's work to help with the poor, the disadvantaged, the people in need. Uh, A couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to do a book for Emory University on nursing, and it really looked at the nursing crisis. The uh, senior editor on this was, at that time, the uh, director of nursing at Emory, uh, Marla Solomon. And uh, it was a wonderful crew that we had gathered together to put this book together for Emory School of Nursing. And I had the opportunity to meet amazing men and women who are out there delivering care under all kinds of circumstances, working in difficult political situations, such in uh, the slums of Nairobi, Kenya, uh, working in remote, uh, isolated areas, such as the public health nurses of Alaska, and a 80-year-old nun named uh, Sister Isolina, who went into the Orinoco Delta, Venezuela, because nobody else would go there to work with a very stressed 
native population who has some of the highest infant mortality rates in the world. So those are the people that just keep me so excited about this topic. These are the people who are actually doing it and risking their lives uh, doing it and often taking low pay and, and very long hours. And those are the people I'll be hopefully sharing a few of their stories as well as doing a somewhat quick summary of the global health world. Uh, it's a very complicated scenario. There are a lot of factors that are involved with why we are in the state that we're in now, so obviously I'm not going to be able to talk about all of them or even go deeply into any of them. So probably a quick survey about what's going on and then into some of the stories of these wonderful individuals who are making a difference. Maybe you could give us the one-minute summary or, you know, whatever, a short amount of time, summary of the uh, problems, the, the critical problems worldwide. AIDS, I think, still is one. If there's one word that would describe why we have issues in global health, it's poverty. Uh, if you're poor, you're not going to have good health. It's kind of a, you know, a, a very logical assumption. Even in our own country, the poor have the least amount of health care delivered to them and not as good quality either. Money buys a lot of good health care. But it's more than just that. It's a lot of other factors. And that's the thing is oftentimes we want to fix the symptoms of a problem. So we end up spending a lot of money trying to figure out what kind of drugs to develop, what kind of vaccines, you know, what kind of bed nets to buy. I mean, those are all wonderful and useful tools that we need. So I feel like we should continue to spend money on that. However, it does not oftentimes deal with the root causes of why we have these issues in the first place. It would probably be better spent, rather than try to develop a vaccine for AIDS, to invest more money into empowering women, educating girls, uh, creating jobs for people, you know, so they don't have to get into these situations where they're at high risk where they cannot be their own independent thinking individuals. So that's, to me, a more difficult problem to deal with, and it's really more of a problem that governments have to address rather than us measly individuals. <laughs> so, um, But I think what I want to talk about is also what I, as an individual, have hoped to do and what I think I hope to inspire other people to do as individuals. As you've traveled around uh, shooting these pictures, doing these stories, are there success stories that you could tout either at the government level or individual level? There are many. Oftentimes, these success stories are at a very community level, or communities have organized to create jobs for women, uh, sustainable jobs for women. One of the few organizations that I just love on many levels is a group called 10,000 Villages. They're a Mennonite group that uh, sells crafts throughout the United States, and they encourage cooperative groups to provide jobs for local people to make these crafts that they sell in countries like the United States and throughout countries in Europe. I find that that's a successful organization that is doing very good work. I think any organization that helps people help themselves is a successful organization. I don't think that a group that just gives food and money and just keeps people kind of begging, I guess, or whatever word you want to use, for that kind of help is not a successful information. You've got to empower people to be able to stand up and do things on their own. And there are many of them out there that provide jobs. Grameen Bank is another one that gives small loans to women uh, throughout areas like Bangladesh. And they've been very successful in bringing women out of poverty. We're talking on this part of Access Utah with Karen Kozmowski, who is a photographer for National Geographic. She's photographed more than 20 major stories for National Geographic, covering subjects as diverse as Appalachia, Japanese culture, and pandemics. And in recent years, she's evolved uh, into the National Geographic's go-to photographer for uh, global health stories, such as worldwide struggle against disease, search for an AIDS cure, mysteries of aging, female reproductive health, and other stories. And uh, and we just have, uh, oh, about uh, 10 more minutes with... Karen Kozmowski. By the way, how did you become National Geographic's uh, go-to person for global health? This is an interest you had? Well, it's a very interesting story. I started out as a normal geographical-type photographer doing geographical stories. I started out doing a story on Hampton Roads and San Diego and the Gullah Sea Islands. And, but what I found myself drawn to were 
scenes, uh, social scenes. When I did San Diego, I noticed that they had awarded their first chair ever for Alzheimer's. Well, that was in the mid-80s. I thought, wow, that's interesting. That means there's a trend coming here. There was this whole thing with jazzercise that got started in San Diego, our obsession with fitness, and yet at the same time we're getting heavier and heavier. There were several themes like that, ideas of people moving in. Uh, They had a lot of immigrants moving into the area at the time. So I found myself really drawn to those social issues and concerns. And I even did a story at one point on radiation, which, again, was another technological science story, but it really looked at the impact of this technology on humans and on the environment. So after uh, several years after that, I was asked by my editor at the time to do a story on viruses, which I will talk a little bit about uh, tonight. And uh, this story really did transform me into, uh, I guess, what you would call someone who's very interested in global health issues. And it was a story which I thought I entered as, I thought it was going to be a science story, just looking at sort of the science of viruses, the biology of viruses or whatever. And I found out that it was a story full of human drama, just major human stories. AIDS became a big part of that story. It was about, oh, probably a good third of the story was about the HIV-AIDS virus. Other things, uh, looking at, it became a very geographical story, too, to my surprise, looking at how destruction of the environment could compromise the health of communities, uh, looking at how issues like clean water became very important to the health of uh, people living on areas where water was not as plentiful, looking at areas like how changes in even farming practices can cause the rise of epidemics in areas. It was very fascinating to me, and I began to really think about something that I was calling back then the ecology of disease. What what happens in our environment that causes epidemics and diseases and health concerns to come forward? And that sort of started me on my journey, I, I would say, through the world of global health. I became very interested in the sort of big picture story behind what I thought was originally a science story. I'm interested in uh, one of the talks that you give. This is on the National Geographic uh, Speakers Bureau. Mm-hmm. The value of cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And you say who shoots the story often factors into what story will be told. There's a Absolutely. cultural filter that you bring. <laughs> right, because there's no such thing as a non-biased journalist. I mean, you always bring your heritage to the playing field. And I, one time I was uh, doing a story in Appalachia, and my editor said to me, why are you always shooting women and children? And I said, well, because that's who I am. There's another photographer there who's a male who, every time he does a story, he does a bar. I would never go into a bar. That's not my orientation. So that's the value of having a diverse group of journalists working on a publication or working on your stories. You don't want the same person all the time doing something because everybody has their own points of view. And if you give one topic to three different photographers, they're going to have three different points of view depending upon their heritage and their background and their economic upbringing. I come from a very poor working-class family. My view of the world is very different from someone who was born in a privileged suburban lifestyle. My family is multi-ethnic. You know, I'm like uh, the president. I come from vast different backgrounds, and that affects the way I look at the world. But in some ways, living in the United States, I think my economic background probably is much more of a factor than my ethnic background. You do give another talk about uh, exploring your Japanese roots. Your mother is Japanese, right? That must have been, over time, a fascinating thing to discover and have the opportunity to go to Japan on several stories and uh, opportunity to explore your roots. That's an amazing thing, and I would love to continue that if I can get funding for it, because I found it an interesting thing for me when I did a story called Japanese Women. I grew up at a time when it wasn't chic to be multi-ethnic. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, in fact, all we wanted to do was to be the so-called, you know, wholesome American person, whatever that person was defined by culture at that time. So I never wanted to learn Japanese, never wanted to learn my roots, always wanted to just blend in. That's all I want to do. Part of it was because we lived in suburbia Chicago. I mean, we didn't, we lived in rural Michigan. We lived in areas that were fairly much singularly ethnic, I guess. Um, And finally, when my father got transferred, my father was a military man. He was in the U.S. Navy. And when we finally uh, ended up in Norfolk, Virginia, it was just like, 
in some weird way coming home because it's a port city. It has a huge military base. There's a lot of different ethnic groups there, and we all felt very comfortable there. And um, in fact, my mother refused to move back to Michigan when my father offered to do that when he retired from the Navy. So it was one of those things where we, you know, it was it was not easy being raised multicultural in an area which is monocultural. So what happened was when I did the story on Japanese women, it was like having my eyes wide open. I was just amazed at so many of the cultural habits or so many cultural markers, I guess, of women in Japan or children in Japan were expressed in me as a child. And I remember when I was young, I used to, when I got embarrassed, I used to laugh and I would hold my mouth and giggle. The more embarrassed I got, the more I would giggle. And I remember an English teacher in Norfolk, Virginia, saying to me, what's so funny? And she said, why are you laughing? And, of course, if she was ethnically sensitive, she would have known that, you know, a lot of Asian people laugh when they're embarrassed. You know, and so she just increasingly made me more and more embarrassed. And I remember just being horrified and laughing even more and more. And and I thought, you know, in these days, people would are more sensitive to that because we are much more of a multicultural society, and I'm very glad for it. But back then, it wasn't easy being that way. And so when I went back to Japan and saw some of these different markers, I guess, I was I was amazed. I was happy. I was actually glad to see that and realize I wasn't so strange. I was actually part Japanese. <laughs> so it, it was a very awakening experience for me, and I have kept in touch with my Japanese relatives, and I just love going back to Japan, and, and I love working there. Just a couple minutes left. Uh, I wanted to talk a bit about a um, media presentation that's on your website. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this may be part of some work uh, projects you've done for AARP mm-hmm. is an elderly African-American couple. Right, Mr. And the, Elliot. the man is dying of uh, prostate cancer. Very moving. You took the pictures, and then I think uh, someone did some interviews, and what you see is the pictures that you took of mm-hmm. the couple, and you hear their voices telling their story. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they had problems, uh, you know, navigating the bureaucracy. They were able to find hospice, and that helped them very much. I pitched this story to AARP because of the nurse story that I had done for Emory University, and I ran into a wonderful hospice nurse working um, for an organization in Washington, D.C., and because of that, I thought, I had never even thought of hospice care. I guess I was fortunate not to have anyone close to me dying yet, and so when I ran into this nurse who was just an incredible individual and so calm and so, I don't know, I just, I, I was kind of stressed out doing this because the, the idea of photograph going into someone's house where someone's dying and photographing them without a whole lot of warning just seemed just highly stressful to me. But she was such a calming factor and was able to calm all of us down completely that I was very impressed with hospice care and, and what they were offering the family. So I pitched this to ARP and they thought it was a good idea. So we did this piece uh, with the same organization out of Washington, D.C., and they found a client, uh, Mr. and his wife, Mrs. Elliott, and I worked with them for several months uh, and their maneuvering of the dying process and how hospice has helped them along. It was a wonderful experience. I got to know Mr. Elliott and Mrs. Elliott very well and still keep in touch with them. I call her every year on the anniversary of his death, and we we just talk like we're old friends, and it was just a wonderful experience for me, and I was very impressed with what hospice did for them. I thought the interviews were very important. It was The interviews were done by a wonderful radio producer named John Olnick, and we talked about that quite a bit. We wanted it to be their voice, not our voice. So uh, my idea was also to bring in old photographs of them from when they had a life together, because it really isn't about dying. It's about living your life to your fullest. And so uh, this man lived a very full and wonderful life. He was a big people person, and we wanted to show that. And, of course, because it is about hospice care, we also have to show the end, too. But we wanted it to be more of a celebration of his life, too. Yeah, very, very powerful. You, you begin with uh, them talking about how they met and fell in love <laughs> and through the family. And then, then in the end, you do see uh, Mr. Elliot uh, dead and uh, the whole process. So a very impactful uh, presentation. And what was quite interesting to me as a journalist is I, Mrs. Elliot has said this to me many times, was that our presence, in fact, helped her also with the process because she was able to talk about her life with her husband and realized how wonderful and important it was and that she felt like our presence also helped her 
get through this very difficult situation. And that was, I can't even tell you what a wonderful thing that was for me to hear. Finally, what are you on to next? One of the things that really concerns me now is really trying to tie in how conservation issues and health issues are interrelated. Those are things that I'm very interested in and would like to work more on. Again, trying to continue my work in global health. Complicated stories like AIDS, it's always about also food and and how people show their hospitality. So that's an area that I'm going to try to get those things together and produce uh, hopefully a uh, maybe a collection or a book or something along those lines that I am right now sort of calling Are You Hungry? (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Well, look for that. Karen Kosmowski, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate being on your show. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how a famous historian used her girlhood memories of Carbon County to completely change the way we understand Utah's past. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. She passed away in 2004, but Helen Z's Papa Nicholas is still revered in Utah as an historian whose work made it impossible to ignore the complexities of Utah's past and present. Throughout her 50-year career, she documented the stories of immigrants and promoted an inclusive view of Utah's diverse ethnic heritage. But who was Helen Papanicholas? Where did she come from? What is her story? Born in 1917 in Carbon County, Helen was the daughter of Greek immigrants. Growing up in the mining and railroad town of Helper, Helen knew diversity, for she was constantly surrounded by Italians, Greeks, Irish, Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, Japanese, and Americans. She remembered religious differences and the shouted insults between the Mormon and Italian boys. She remembered feeling different, having to attend Greek classes after her regular school day and trying to hide her Greek books in her desk so the other children wouldn't see. As a young girl in the 1920s, Helen witnessed the funeral train for a Greek man killed in a nationwide coal strike and was shaped by dark memories of the devastating Castlegate mining disaster and of Ku Klux Klan activities in Carbon County. As a teenager, Helen's family moved to Salt Lake City, where she attended the University of Utah. Her ambition was to become a doctor, but she also loved to write. While studying for a degree in bacteriology, she worked as an editor for the university's literary magazine, and so her writing career began. Helen graduated from college, married and had two children, and still she wrote, trying her hand at novels and short stories. Holding firm to her Greek heritage, she used that for the basis of her first publication in 1954, an article for the Utah Historical Quarterly called The Greeks of Carbon County, influenced no doubt by her childhood experiences. That article marked a major shift in the kind of history published in Utah and led to many other works, including her 1976 book, The Peoples of Utah, which has been acclaimed as an undeniable celebration of Utah's rich ethnic history. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were provided by Heidi Orchard. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.